Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Practical Theology. My name is Sayed Azadi, and I'm a student of the Doctorate in Practical Theology at Glasgow University, and I'm joined here by Eric Stoddard. Hello, yes, I'm Eric Stoddard, and I teach Practical Theology at University of St Andrews in Scotland. And um, a very uh, brief introduction of how we met, because... um, Uh, If you didn't listen to the previous episode, you might be curious as to why and how we've come together. But um, there was a conference on practical theology in the UK um, last year, and we started to have conversations about certain things that had come up during that discussion and kind of decided that it would be interesting to continue our discussions and to try and understand and unpack the world of practical theology a little bit more and then to share these conversations with you. And so today we're looking at well-being and well-being is a really interesting subject because it covers so many different aspects of life. Um, And from a a religious perspective, from a kind of practical perspective, from a secular perspective as well. But I think one of the really kind of interesting things that we can touch on is where does religion kind of um, fall into the whole concept of well-being and how can we actually use faith to aid us in improving our um, physical, mental, spiritual all other different kinds of well-being as well. So that's what we're going to try and touch on in this conversation today. And uh, one of the things that I would like to begin with is the whole idea of um, well-being being part of actually looking after your physical body. And I think as a Muslim, one of the things that I've been taught to do and I try and practice regularly is the whole idea of making sure that you know you eat well and that you kind of drink properly and you nourish and sustain your body because in in many ways your body is a vessel for the soul but i think on a kind of practical level day-to-day life you know that gets lost and i think it's very sad that we've become um so connected to certain rituals within our faiths and then so disconnected with certain teachings within our faith so let's kind of maybe try and use that as an opener. Yeah, and, and you know, in the Christian tradition, we use the language of the body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Christians ought to be looking after their physical bodies, let alone spiritual bodies. So, you know, we share a lot there. And, you know, I'm just thinking, oh, goodness me, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't get near that. Uh, so, you know, hands up to you and to the audience that uh, I'm not going to talk around this as as an expert in well-being. It's more about, um, this is is one of the areas that um, certainly my Christian faith, well, maybe doesn't make a huge amount of difference. (laughs) I don't know, but let's see. So you talked about looking after your body. What sort of practical steps are encouraged within Islam? Well, there's a a really fascinating hadith, which actually has kind of, and a hadith is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, um, peace and blessings be upon him, which has been documented. So it can kind of like be um, uh, traced back to him through certain narrations. And the hadith says, take benefit of five before five, your youth before your old age, your health before your sickness, 
your wealth before your poverty, your free time before you're preoccupied, and your life before your death. And that's something that has actually influenced a lot of my work. And when I kind of discovered this saying and started to unpack how I could live my life by it, I then realized that actually it's one of the hardest things to do because we as humans set our standards so high and yet I think sometimes we aim, we kind of, we miss it so much. And so I can say as in an ideal world, what I would try and do. And interestingly, the Quran, when it defines the type of food that we should be eating, there's so much focus on the word halal, which has become technical in terms of how meat is slaughtered and things like this. What's forgotten is the second part of that, which is antayyib. And that means and good. And the way that um, the, that the kind of phrase halal antayyib has been um, kind of unpacked let's say, by the scholars, is that the food should be nourishing, it should be grown well, the animals should be cared for, etc. So, for example, when we look at the, the milk that's available in the supermarket today, and it, they say that some milk contains up to 40-50% of um, mucus, right? is that really meeting the definition of halal and tayyib? And the problem that we have is that one can aspire to live in a certain way but practically it's become so much more difficult and so that then kind of makes you think well do I buy cow's milk or do I go on to soya or almond milk because actually that's probably more nutritious for me so these are the kind of day-to-day dilemmas that I'm facing and and just a something else to throw in there I remember once when um when I was on maternity leave and uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to buy British. I'm only going to buy British fruit and veg and, and meat and everything else. So you go to the supermarkets and you're trying to buy tomatoes that have been grown in the UK. And they had been from all over Europe, but I could not find tomatoes that were from Britain. So in the end, you kind of think, okay, I've been to three supermarkets now and you end up buying tomatoes from Spain because that's all that's available. Is that because they weren't in season or is that because it's cheaper to get them imported? And whilst these questions actually may not necessarily be religion specific, I think that we have a moral obligation to think about the source of our food and our nutrition and all of these other things, because that does then also um, kind of influence. And here's, here's an interesting thing. So if we're buying our food from abroad, are we looking after our neighbors? And there's another kind of um, saying which says that we have a responsibility to make sure that we look after our neighbours. That's people within our locality. So if I can buy from a farm shop, that's much better for me than buying from someone who's kind of imported their goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's because we're facing such a long food chain in the way that our predecessors simply didn't have. Yeah. And you could go to the local farmer and you would buy things. And, you know, whether it's in the time of the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, they were making a short walk to a market. Maybe some spices might have travelled a long distance, but that was it. Um, You had that short connection between the well-being of the animals and the food that you were eating. And, you know, certainly from the the Hebrew Bible tradition, where caring for the animals is, is an important element of being a good person. Uh, it doesn't come up overtly, I don't think, in the 
New Testament, but it is about caring for creation. So sort of by implication, if we're being righteous and attending to God's creation, then we're going to look after animals. We're not going to be dealing with them in ways that are intrinsically harmful for them, um, which isn't getting to vegetarianism, but it, it, it's, it's at that point of saying, you know, how we treat, if animals are some sense are weaker than us, how we treat them actually tells us about our values mm. and who we are before God and how important we understand God's creation. But isn't it interesting that, you know, in, in the religious traditions, meat was consumed so much less than it is now. Now there seems to be an expectation of meat for breakfast, lunch and dinner, whereas, you know, what they, what's been documented of the Prophet Muhammad, for example, <clears throat> peace and blessings upon him, is that um, he would eat like meat once, maybe once a year. And that would be at kind of a celebration of for Eid or something. Now, if I say that to any Muslim or the majority of Muslims, they're going to freak out and they're going to be like, you know, you're talking rubbish. It's, it's so easily accessible now. But people aren't thinking about the source. And I would much rather actually go along the line of becoming a vegetarian and do it with the deliberate kind of intention that it's a tradition of the prophet that I'm following because when I eat meat, I want to eat good meat that's wholesome and has been raised properly. And it's, and it's something that it's okay. I can, I can do without it on a regular basis, but then that's just me. And I know, you know, it's, it can be quite hard to adjust to becoming a vegetarian. So. Yeah. And I think within my tradition, meat has certainly been often so much associated with celebration and feasting. Mm. So it, it's on the feast days and, and again, I think it depends on your context. I was at Burns Supper last night, out of season with, with Burns Day, Burns Night. But, you know, we had haggis there, and that was the leftovers that the people right at the bottom of the, of, of the economic heap were eating. So haggis was not something that the, the wealthy people would have lowered themselves to have. And we've flipped it entirely now. But it, it was salutary to think that you know, here, my predecessors were really struggling in Scotland to find healthy food, certainly if you were at the bottom of the economic pile. And, you know, Burns, as a poet, taps into some of that about ordinary life and just how difficult it can be. And for me, there's something there about the economics of food and well-being, because if it costs us more money to actually help eat healthily, what is, what is that as in our society? If it's going to be cheaper to buy food that is actually detrimental to your health, but you can't actually afford either to, to, to pay the prices in the specialist shops or to actually travel to the specialist shops. Mm. If you can't afford a bus fare to get to the farmer's market, even if you could save up for that. So there's a huge, I think, wider political issue about mm. how we I enable do, others' well-being. I do think some of it comes down to education, though. Because I think, um, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying in terms of the quality of so farmers markets, for example. But actually, let's say you can't go to farmers markets, but you could afford to buy um, the fruits and veggies and whatever in um, a, a supermarket like Lidl or Aldi. And, and they have so many great offers on these days that if you know how to cook these things, actually you can have a very good nutritious healthy diet but the challenge is is that these days 
some kids don't even know that potatoes make chips. They think that chips are somehow created from... Mm-hmm. And I remember being in a supermarket once and there was a confusion at the checkout till for um, this item or for this vegetable. And the lady didn't know what it was and it took 10 minutes to work out that it was a courgette. And I just stood back being completely entertained by this, thinking what has happened in society where an, a young adult doesn't even know what a courgette is. Yeah, I wonder if it's not just about education. It, it, I think it's so tied up with mental health and self-image that if I'm feeling positive about myself, I will go and cook properly. But if, if I'm fragile, if, I, if I'm needing some comfort food, I will grab unhealthy stuff, shove it in the microwave, and I understand the difference between feeling in a good place and therefore cooking mm. and feeling in a bad place and eating poorly. And if you're having to weigh that up in terms of just how much money have I got, you know, how many kids am I going to have to manage and feed, I, I think it's more than education. It, it, it's about what's hap- what, what, what has happened to people where... It, it's tied to mental health, as I say, self-image. It's tied to wider messages that the rest of society put out. And that sort of mixes well-being with health and how people who are not looking after themselves, in inverted commas, are presented in the press. If you get all those negative messages, I understand why taking the effort to cook good food is yeah. just too much. Yeah, it's because, I I mean, I agree with you, and it's because people have, um, we don't care so much for ourselves. And um, let's, you know, let's let's say you are in a scenario where you've got kids to feed and things, right? Then you care more for the other than you do for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that there is this expectation as well about sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I think, and one of the things that I've, and I'm still on this journey, right, that I'm still trying to unpack is at what point do you actually say, I can only care for others if I care for myself? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that there is something in there within our religious traditions that teaches us that we should try and do both. But in the practice of living life, one tends to just sacrifice oneself for others. And if you then say, actually, this is my right, you know, or this is what I'm entitled to within a family structure, you're seen as being selfish and, and you're taking away from people who've got more priority if, if you mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah, and, you know, the Hebrew prophets have a lot to say about how those who have got privilege and wealth gain that on the back of and oppress those without and there's something about that social justice element that for me it's a travesty that in somewhere like the UK a mother might have to go without food herself for even a couple of days in order to feed her kids and you know that people are having to use food banks in the UK that to me is not just a political but it's a spiritual issue 
and the prophets have challenged the sort of society that's built that makes that necessary. And I think from that sort of Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition, the, the balance of providing and supporting food banks, but yet saying these should never actually exist. That it, it's a sort of tension that both have to be done, but how, how are we understanding our social relationships if this mm. is where we've got? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, when, when I was growing up, for a period of time, we, um, our family was supported through um, social security, you know, and uh, food banks didn't exist then. And, mm. you know, I mean, I think my mum was very savvy, you know, and we kind of did okay. But if food banks didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago and things were okay, what has shifted, which has meant that food banks have to exist now? You know, and I, and I find it horrific. I, I think it's obscene that we live in a society where the government has um, kind of absolved itself of responsibility because social organisations are coming in and kind of picking up the pieces of the mess that they've left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and those are deep political decisions. The, of course, the answers to that are not going to come only from faith perspectives. But for those of us who have faith perspective, I think it, it's, it's an indictment upon how over many, many years, this, is, this has not been snap decisions. Mm. These are sort of accumulation of small decisions that, that gather momentum and then we reach this point with people having to choose their well-being, whether they can actually buy food that's going to be good for them or having to do something else. And that's, in all the complexity of it, it, it it's, it's just, it's sort of unraveled or, or maybe the opposite, better way to say it, it's got more entangled mm. in politics and different types of social relationships that we have. You know, I'm sure when I was young and you know, just a kid in the tenements in Aberdeen, I wouldn't have been surprised if neighbours were helping each other out. You know, I was less than five years old, so I didn't know. But it it, it wasn't a huge long time after rationing had finished, and certainly the mums who were, and they would have been the mums then who were doing all the cooking, would have remembered rationing and queuing and sharing. And But, you know, it it can't be a nostalgic answer. we're yeah. in a different place now. Yeah, and in in it's interesting actually because I think that there are you're you're right in the in how the history has led us to this point. So another side of all of that is like looking at the um, kind of uh, health provision, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we now live in a world where they're saying that mental health is the um, or, or depression is now slowly becoming or maybe already has i can't remember my stats apologies but um it's become one of the biggest causes of um death globally Mm. right overtaking obesity now i i don't i haven't actually tried to unpack that and looked at the statistics in detail but the fact that that can be said as a sentence right and there still is a lot of um stigma over mental health issues and then we have other things like heart disease and diabetes and um, um, obesity. 
which to some degree can be um, kind of uh, um, responded to with a healthier lifestyle. Yet that is not supported by the NHS because the solution for the NHS for all of these problems, whether they're physical or psychological, is here, pop a pill. And that solution, I think, has the result of that over the years has now led us to the point where the NHS is no longer kind of in a position to be able to sustain itself. And yeah, it's not it's clearly not easy, you know, to change your diet and to try and um, deal with certain mental health issues through physical exercise, etc. And that's not a solution for everybody. But actually, why not try it? Why not give people the option to to go down that route and then see if that works for them? Because I suspect more and more people would rather have a change in diet and do some exercise than take pills that they then have to take other pills for because of the side effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's seeing well-being and health in the round mm-hmm. holistically. And you know, to me, that's one side of my Christian perspective is that it really does understand health in terms of not just body, not just spirit, not just mind, but also in terms of relationships with other people and the environment. It, it does build a broad understanding of health, but also my Christian tradition has not been helpful in things like mental illness. And the long tradition of right back to the Bible times when mental illness would have been understood in demonic terms, the spirits being expelled from people in the New Testament. There's then right through the early pre-scientific period with negative understandings of, of mental illness. Then you get through things like punishment from God. And it's only very recently that the, a more positive understanding of and sympathetic understanding from the biblical traditions and theological traditions about mental health has been emerging. And so there's a lot for my traditions to catch up on. Some great stuff being done in in mental health and and, um, spirituality and mental health and and those aspects of of recovering it. But, you know, there is a legacy there that I think certainly my community has to hold their hands up and say, despite that, trajectory of holistic ideas of well-being we've certainly not always contributed positively into that Mm. i mean i I think what i'm going to say might be seen as being a little bit controversial because it's something that people are a little bit scared of talking about but i think that the world of the kind of the the gins and the spirits and all of that Mm -hmm. i'm it's got to exist because God tells us it's there in the Quran and in the holy books, right? So it's got to be there. It's just, it's very scary for us to engage with it. And I think that if we, if, this is where I'm at in my head now anyway. If I believe in angels, I can't deny that other side as well. But the, how I then bring that into mental health is that, of course, if, if, if when one faces a mental health issue, we should seek all different kind of um, aspects of solution, right? And so if you just set go, if one goes down a spiritual route alone, 
I don't think that's satisfactory to resolve it just in the same way that if I was to say just go down a um, kind of a, a medical intervention alone but it, it takes um, courage and uh, understanding to know that all of these different routes are available but I also think that there's a lot of charlatans that operate within um, let's say the spiritual side of things and that then means you have one has no idea who to trust and I think that is a huge huge issue because then people are uh, throwing money away they're kind of um, investing a lot of time and energy and then maybe not actually really resolving a, a mental health issue that then manifests itself physically and actually the problem becomes so much worse yeah and as a practical theologian um i can sort of get off the hook because i don't need to have a coherent systematic worked out system of of, of theological thinking but to be honest that's that's a bit of an escape clause because you know in, in the Christian tradition, you know, all that is there, spirits in the New Testament, and it's been a significant part of, of Christian spirituality in different flavours and currently. And I honestly don't know where I stand on this. I used to be in a particular Christian tradition that was more aware and talked the language of spirits and even a bit about angels and things. But I've then sort of moved drastically away from that. Mm. But then thinking, well, actually, that's too simplistic, too too scientific an answer. How do I handle people's experience? A practical theologian, if people are experiencing things that don't fit my scientific paradigm, well, as a practical theologian, I've got to take that experience seriously. And so I'm, I'm now in this help. I don't know where I fit on this sort of stuff. <laughs> um, I, yeah, sort of maybe I'll take some of it, but maybe I'm very suspicious of it. But I want to just be rationalist. There's a bit of me that wants to be purely rationalist, but I know that's not what it means to be human. But isn't it okay not to know the answer? Because that's kind of where I am at, you know. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes if um, if we try and find the answer too much, then we just get lost inside our thoughts and then the logic mm-hmm. of things gets lost. Yes, and I think having the luxury for me of not being any more in pastoral ministry, that I can go away and think about these things. I'm not confronted with people who are requiring my pastoral intervention. And so I have a space that I appreciate isn't there for folks who are much more encountered. And it's maybe that as an academic hinders what I do because it means I can step back a bit, but yet there's an advantage in creating that, that critical space to think about it. But, you know, a practical theology of spirits and ghosts and angels and demons I've not seen somebody do that yet no it'd be interesting to see but I think it would be um it would take a brave soul to go down that route I think 
and, and to be sure they get a doctorate at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting when you speak about the experience, because I think um, kind of coming back to, to practical theology, when, if, if, let's say, somebody was to, to study this in practice, I can think of many different areas. So, for example, um, yeah, it, let, let's say marriage. You know, Some people will say that their marriage is destroyed because of spirits you know or some people will then talk about how someone's been possessed and their personality has changed and all of these other things and it would be um interesting to start to unpack that because i as as you mentioned earlier work has started to happen with mental health and spirituality and i attended a conference uh, gosh a good few years ago with the british psychological society where some of this started to get touched upon and um and there is still a lot of work to do, but I think even the fact that this has started to now be acknowledged by psychologists is going to help the people who are afflicted by some of these things. But I also kind of think sometimes, is there an element of where someone, you know, we, we have this tendency where, for example, I, you know, I've had the cold and the flu for ages now, and I've got this cough. So we'll go online we'll search something, we'll read it and think, oh yeah, I've got all of these things. That must be it. And so it's one thing doing it with a cold or a, you know, a, a, a knee injury or something like this. It's something completely different. It maybe actually isn't something completely different. Maybe it's the same when someone starts to do it with a psychological issue and then starts to mm-hmm. kind of think, actually, this is what I have. And so then those symptoms increase even more as a result of a self-diagnosis due to the internet. Yeah, and that's a huge issue, as you say, for for medical as well as psychological care. And that's where you can then get the charlatans coming in, <coughs> offering easy solutions and pay them money here, there, everywhere. But the, the presence of charlatans shouldn't... I think, negate the importance of other perspectives. And, and if that's a non-rationalist, um, non-empirical perspective, that's where our faith traditions are push, have, keep pushing us. And for folks like me who want to be a rationalist, but no, I can't be and shouldn't be, mm. that continual push back to those biblical texts that destabilize my nice, comfortable 21st century rationalism. I don't like it. There's a lot in the New Testament I don't like. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because, like, when you talk about rationalism, and I, mean, I think that's, I mean, I, I like logic, so I think that's probably the route that I would take myself as well. And um, what I did was I thought, okay, I know this all exists. And, and so, for example, in, um, in Islam, some of the kind of spiritual aspects of, of things is called um, uh, rukya. And so rukya is a form of medicine that you can do um, for yourself. And I thought, okay, let me find out about how I can study this. And it just happened that, you know, I've, for years and years I've been looking, nothing happened. And then there was a course um, last October for three days. And I thought, okay, I've got to do this. And, I'm so pleased that I did that because having done that and then understood it from the sources, from the text and learning with somebody who is um, 
well respected by the scholars globally, it really helped me to then start to unpack some of these things. And <clears throat> so from a kind of um, practical aspect of well-being and also dealing with these other um, kind of issues, because I think um, one of the things that I would like to think is that Islam views well-being holistically. So, for example, we have um, certain um, prayers to say in the morning and in the evening um, that, uh, or certain words to recite. And what they do is they kind of act as a protection. And so you're, you're kind of outside the five prayers a day. And so you're saying these extra things. And the way that um, I understand it is that if you say these things, then you're protected for the day. And then if you say them at night, then you're protected in the evening. Now, my kind of perspective on this, and I'm, I'm certainly not a blind follower of faith. I need to be able to understand that um, what is written has a, a kind of um, a practical aspect. So I'll kind of explore it until I understand it. But actually, when I tested this, it seemed to work. And yes, I'm sure there's kind of the, um, oh, what do they call it when you take a blue pill and it's got no medicine. Placebo. But I'm, I'm sure there is an element of um, uh, placebo, but I'm also sure that there's an element of God then saying, okay, so you've now done what I asked you to do, so you get a little bit of extra protection. And I think it's those kind of things that are daily rituals that we can do without the aid of um, anybody, because we've been informed that this is what you need to say, that they are practically helpful. And this is the kind of stuff that I think is missing within um, certain communities and certain um, the lives of some individuals, because what happens is that... Um, and, you know, it's, it's not for everybody, but what happens is that some people will identify, let's say, as belonging to a particular community, but it's cultural rather than spiritual. And so when an um, affliction or a problem occurs, then the solution is there in front of them, but they're not actually implementing the solution. And I think actually, even in the world of practical theology, there's a lot to unpack there about where is the line between culture and practice within religion, because I think this line is kind of increasingly becoming one of um, cultural practice rather than religious practice. And I don't think, I'd, I personally think that we are all on a journey, but I think the awareness of that journey and kind of self-awareness of, of who you are and your relationship with God that's the most important thing, right? So it's not about kind of um, comparing and saying, oh, look, that person's better than me and I'm better than that person, but it's about understanding where you are and then kind of maybe coming full circle to this whole idea of well-being. If we understand who we are physically and psychologically and spiritually, maybe we can then kind of decide the areas that we need to work on to make our lives better. And maybe just as a finishing observation, that that understanding who we are is tied up with understanding who God is, mm. because they're not totally separate. Um, how we view ourselves is in relation to how we view God. And I think as our understanding of ourselves can change, 
maybe our understanding of God changes as well. Maybe that's what in practical theology we're wrestling with. How much change is possible, permitted, good, encouraged, that tension within practical theology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a it's a, a huge question, you know, and both from an academic side, but also from a, mm. a practice side, you know, I think that's something that we'll never answer. But actually, the exploration of that will give us so much rich material to then consider and to then know ourselves better so we can know others better and know God mm. better. Absolutely. Yeah. So... Thank a nice positive for... point to finish on. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it is. And, it, and it's, it's been very interesting for me just kind of like looking at where this journey of the discussion on well-being has gone to mm. as well because we've touched on so many different things that I didn't expect to and not really spoken about the things that I thought <laughs> we would. So we'll save that for another episode. Likewise. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. Thank you so much, um, Eric. It's been a fascinating discussion as always. And uh, to the audience, thank you. Um, Please do make sure that you subscribe and uh, join us for another conversation in practical thiology. This is Sayyid Zaidi saying thank you so much and I will see you again soon. And Eric Stoddard saying thanks for watching. Bye now.